So we are going to be in John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18 today, second week in our Gospel of John series. Uh, At the beginning of John's Gospel, he is asking questions for us like, what is God like? What is God's character like? Can I trust him? If he's like Jesus, then I think I can trust him, but is he really like Jesus? And if Jesus was God in a bod, then how would that impact me in this bod? How would it impact you in your bod? What does it look like for you to live as Jesus was, fully human, in the body that God has given you? Of course, The Apostle John is writing here, and he's one of the inner three disciples who was very close to Jesus. He's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He spent a lot of intimate time with Jesus, really difficult moments as well. He was there in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. He was there with Jesus when he went to the cross at Mount Calvary. He was there when Jesus was betrayed by Judas. And he was there visiting the grave when Jesus rose from the dead. He went to go pay respects to his dear friend Jesus, and to his surprise, he gets to the tomb and he sees that Jesus has risen physically from the dead. Now, several years later, he's writing down these eyewitness reflections and digging up the implications for how you and I think about God and how you and I think about humanity. Listen now from John 1, starting at verse 14. The word, which we learned last week is a word for Jesus, the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John the Baptist, a different John, testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. I'd like to take a few moments today to simply explain this text. What is John getting at, both theologically and historically, and then look at the implications of this text for our lives as we operate as followers of Christ and we consider if Jesus incarnated this earth, if he became fully human, what implications does that have for me in my humanity? Now the two major religions of John's day as he's writing were called Judaism and Greek Gnosticism. Judaism, of course, was John's native religion. It was Jesus' native religion. It was the religion of the Jews. And Judaism taught that God would indeed send a Messiah to rescue the Jews, 
and they longed for a Messiah to specifically rescue them from Greek and Roman and Babylonian rule as they had been under the oppressive thumb of these empires for many centuries before. But what the Jews did not have any conception of was that God would send himself. They didn't have that in their mind. That God would send himself, that God would become flesh and blood, that God would incarnate humanity, that God would come to earth. Indeed, they didn't have much of a conception of the kind of Messiah they got. They were waiting for a Messiah who would come on a horseback with two swords in his hands. But what they got instead was a suffering, sacrificial servant who won the day over a different enemy called sin and Satan. Now, that was the Judaism that John is writing to here. The Greek Gnosticism, as widely practiced in the Roman Empire, included this idea that the spirit is good, even divine, but the body is bad. And so the most spiritual people amongst the Greeks would tend to be gurus or meditators who thought of the body as bad and thought in order to grow in spirituality, you distance yourself from the body, you distance yourself from the earth, There was no earthiness to their religion. It was this idea that the spirit is good and the physical manifestations here in life are bad. And so all of that means that to Jews, it was really difficult to believe that Jesus was God. They could believe that he was a man, but they had a great difficulty believing that he was God. But to the Greeks, they could believe that he was God because the spirit was good and they saw Jesus doing miracles. They said anyone who does the kind of miracles that Jesus did, he must have been divine because nothing good dwells in bodily form. They could believe that Jesus was God, but they had a hard time believing that someone like him could be a mere human. And into these two different crowds, John is speaking here in John 1, 14 to 18. To his Jewish family and countrymen, he says first in John 1, verse 1 and 3 that we looked at last week, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, indeed the Word was God, Jesus was God, through him all things were made, he's the creator. Then if we didn't get the point, John goes on here in verse 18 to say, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself, he's God himself. The one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And so John is here speaking to the Jews saying, I know it's so difficult to understand, but Jesus came, even though he was obviously a man, he also was God in flesh. The only Son of God had come to earth. And in case the Jews needed more evidence of that, He gives a couple different lines here. Verse 15, he says, John the Baptist testified concerning Jesus, saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. What's that about? It's this. John the Baptist was born before Jesus, but John the Baptist, as a teacher and a prophet in his own right, says, the one who came after me, my cousin Jesus, he was way before me. He was preexistent. He was eternal. He is the creator. He's the one that came before me. Worship him, not me, is what John the Baptist is saying. 
And then verse 17, the Jews, of course, loved the law. They loved the first five books of Moses called the law, and they particularly loved the Ten Commandments, as we do as well. But the Jews would sometimes almost venerate the Ten Commandments, and to the Jews here, John says, verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but something greater than the law is here. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and Jesus fulfills the law. He's greater even than the law. And so all of this points to John's Jewish family and countrymen saying, I know it's hard to believe, but Jesus came to this earth and he was God who decided to incarnate this world to draw you near to him. Now to his Greek countrymen who didn't believe um, in the goodness of humanity, didn't believe in the goodness of physical stuff in this world, John has a word as well. And verse 14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word for dwelling is the same word that's used in the Bible for tabernacle. So Jesus literally tabernacled among us. He pitched a tent and chose to live in this world. He left the glory of heaven with his mansion there and chose to enter into this world as a homeless man. He lived in a tent. He went from house to house. He entered flesh and blood. And John used the most raw language that he possibly can to describe Jesus' humanity and so to describe the goodness of our bodies where our spiritual formation takes place, right? This is the only place our spiritual formation takes place, right here. So there's a goodness to our body. And to speak to that, John says he became flesh. Like this is the most raw word that he could have used. It's not just that Jesus was a carpenter who sometimes got a splinter. It's not just that Jesus welcomed children onto his lap and he blessed them and he hugged them and he said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. It's not just that he looked into the eyes of those that he was healing and as he looked in his eyes, he put his hand on them and he had compassion on them. It's not just that there was a tear that would go down his face when his dear friend Lazarus died. It's all of those things, but in addition to that, he says to his Greek audience and to us, he became flesh and blood and made his dwelling amongst us. Jesus is this glorious, mysterious paradox that he's fully God and fully man. Say that out loud with me. He is fully God and he's both. At the same time, it's a paradox. We can't fully get our minds around it. He is fully God and fully man. He is full of grace and full of truth. He is all-powerful, and yet he gave himself to the most gruesome form of suffering known to man at that time. He is both of these at the same time. He is these two wings of truth that make the eagle called Christianity soar. He's glorious. And I don't know about you, I don't really want a faith that I can neatly tuck into my little God box. I want a faith that retains some mystery, that are bigger 
ideas that are bigger than I can merely explain with my mind. I want a faith that embraces some paradox and embraces some mystery because then it becomes this living adventure, this journey that we gauge upon across decades as opposed to just believing propositional truths and then being done with it. Here's the big idea that we get from this text. Jesus is the full and final disclosure of what God is like and what we are meant to be. It's both. He's the full and final disclosure of what God is really like and what you and I are meant to be. And so again, if you want to know what God is like, you read the Gospels. You look at Jesus. Look no further than Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what humanity is supposed to be like, you look at Jesus. You stare at Jesus. You fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, because he's the image of what a real human looks like. The big theological word for all of this is incarnation. It's this idea that God chooses to dwell within our form in order to sympathize with us and identify with us in our frailty. I love the way Max Licato, a well-known author, puts the incarnation. He says this, He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. God was given eyebrows and elbows, two kidneys and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. Maybe he even punched against her tummy. He had these physical needs. He was hungry and he was tired. He was sad and he was lonely. He experienced anger and he experienced sorrow. He also experienced laughter and great joy and tears. You see, in every other religion of the world, what you need to do is work hard enough to perhaps climb up the ladder, and maybe you do enough good things and you minimize enough bad things that perhaps your good things overwhelm your bad things, and maybe if you're lucky, just maybe you can peek up to God. That's what every other religion of the world says. But in Christianity, the story is very different. It's a story of grace in which God chooses to descend down the ladder to look eyeball to eyeball with you and say, you're welcome. You're welcome to come near to me. I care about you. I love you. I have you as you are. He looks into our eyes and he says, I've come for you. Stop climbing up to God. Allow him to come near to you and worship him as he is. Jesus is so self-secure, he is so self-secure, he's willing to humble himself like that in order to draw near to you. It's not about my work, it's about what he's already done. It's not about what you do, it's about what Jesus has already done for you. Now why did Jesus do this? Why did he become so frail as to swim in his mother's amniotic fluids? I'll give you three reasons. Number one, to identify with us in our very frail humanity As we go through frailty, we can know that he actually sympathizes with us. Number two, to forgive our sins. Because another person can forgive your sins against them. If I sin against you, you, my brother or sister, hopefully will forgive me. But if I sin against God, can you forgive me? No, you cannot. 
Only God can forgive sins against God. And so Jesus goes to the cross in order to forgive us our sins against a holy and righteous God, and all of us have fallen short of his standards. Me too. And number three, in addition to that, he came to give us this image of what it looks like, this example of what it looks like to, to live full of grace and full of truth at the same time. Not one or the other, but full of grace and truth. Let's look up again on the screen and see John 1, 14 and 18. I wonder if you would read this out loud with me. My voice needs a break. Would you please? Ready? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God. Hmm. Nobody's ever seen God, but God has made him known to us, full of grace and full of truth. Now, we all tend to err on one side or the other, grace or truth. Perhaps you've known someone who just kind of lives by the dictum, live and let live. Let's just relax together. Let's just chillax together. You got your preferences, and I got my preferences. And there's nobody who can say what is right or wrong. There is no absolute truth with a capital T. There's no moral right or wrong. There's just one's preferences. And perhaps that's the Mr. All-Grace guy. And how does it feel to be with the Mr. All-Grace guy? It feels kind of good because you can just relax together and nobody is making any moral judgments. Nobody is saying what is right or wrong. You can do what you want to do. But after you're with that person for a while, you realize they're really like Mr. Wet Noodle. And you don't really want to be with that person because they don't have much substance to them and you realize they don't take a stand on anything. It's this all grace, no truth paradigm. Now conversely, uh, you have the guy who's all truth and no grace. And that's the guy who likes to tell everyone all of their opinions and pronounce their various judgments, think their various judgments, and speak them as often as possible. And when you're with that guy, how do you feel? You feel about like this. The truth is you don't really want to be with that guy. You don't want to spend too much time with that guy because that's Mr. Judgmental. And when you're around that guy, you feel really, really small. And all of us err on one side of this or another. I had a seminary professor who was fond of saying every person that she had ever met has always erred on one side or the other, grace or truth. The only one who ever did it perfectly was Jesus of Nazareth. And all of us have this tendency, like we may not be Mr. Judgmental, all truth and no grace. We may not be Miss Wet Noodle, all grace and no truth. But many of us are like 75% of one and 25% of the other. And we kind of say to each other, well, just deal with it. That's kind of just the way I am. I'm a truth guy. 
I just deal with it. That's kind of the, 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 that's the way I am, just a grace guy. I, I just kind of live and let live. But Jesus does not give us that option. What he did is he came full of grace and full of truth to give us a demonstration of what we are supposed to do. And so he brings not 25% of each or 50% of each. He brings 100% of each such that a new mechanism develops, a new organism develops in us, and even is overflowing for others to experience full of grace and full of truth. When I'm with that person, it's just different. Man, I want to be that person. I'm not that person yet, but I want to be that person. How does Jesus do this? Well, listen, here's how he still continues to do it. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? What do you say, Jesus? They're using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, and he started to write in the ground with his finger. You ever wonder what he wrote? Perhaps it was the word grace. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up, and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stopped, stooped down, and wrote on the ground. Perhaps the second time he wrote truth. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. But go and sin no more. Who does that? Only Jesus balances this perfectly. But he is our example. He's the image of who God is. And he's the image of what humanity is supposed to be. In our life groups, this is who we are. In our neighborhoods, this is who we are. In our families, in our parenting, online, this is who we are. Full of grace and full of truth. How do we do that? Let me give you a few incarnational implications. Okay, here's three ways that you might consider doing just that. The first one is this. Ask yourself, how do I say it graciously? Whatever it is, how do you say it graciously? Mr. Wet Noodle, of course, says nothing at all. Adultery? Ah, you have your preferences, I have my preferences. Let's just live and let live. Adultery, smultery. That's what Mr. Wet Noodle does. Mr. Judgmental comes in with two guns a-blazing. And he picks up his stones like the Pharisees. 
But you notice that Jesus stood in between the Pharisees with their stones and the woman with her stain, and he looks the woman in the eye and he says, has anyone condemned you? He gives her grace, and after giving her grace, what does he do? He says, woman, please stop. Like, dear lady, you are hurting yourself, and you are hurting other people. This is not the way you want to live. Please leave your life of sin. He doesn't do one or the other, so he says it. But he says, how do I say it graciously and humbly? Here's number two. You ask, how do I say it graciously? And the number two, you allow people to come as they are. Don't expect people to be all cleaned up when they come to you. Please don't expect people to be all cleaned up when they come to church. Please don't expect people in your neighborhood to, to be all cleaned up. Jesus came to us when we were filthy. Amen? He came to us when we were a mess. He meets us right in the middle of the mess. One of the reasons the church in America is suffering because it doesn't greet people in their mess. I'm so grateful that God met me in my mess. I'm so grateful that you met me in my mess. I'm a mess. Do you know that? If I haven't told you enough, I am. Like, I need you to meet me in my mess. George Barna is probably the most well-known Christian researcher today. He does all different kinds of surveys he did a groundbreaking survey about 10 years ago in which he did a large, large study of millennials, which is people about age 18 to 38, that 20-year span right now, and why they are leaving the church in much higher numbers than previous generations. And this is what Barna found, that young people are leaving the church in much higher generations today than previous generations because of two basic things, hypocrisy and judgmentalism. Those two. The hypocrisy of I'm going to speak one way and act another way, or I'm going to pretend that I have it all together, which you're only just pretending. And then judgmentalism that says I'm going to look down my nose at this person. I'm not going to welcome them as they are. And to that, Jesus says, I've come. Full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and blood. He pitched a tent and he moved into our neighborhood. He comes to us just as we are. So will we welcome other people just as they are? I love the way Coach Claire Borhoff puts this. He's one of our elder statesmen here at this church. He was a football coach at UNK for a few decades, I believe. And one of our former elders, just a wonderful, wonderful man. And he likes to say this. The only reason to ever look down at anyone is to give them a hand up. You hear that? The only reason to ever look down at anyone is to kneel down and give them a hand up. Ooh. And so you apply this to your life. You say, all right, we have a new employee at work, and he's walked in with green hair. He's covered with tattoos, and he smells like smoke. Am I going to focus on the green hair, the tattoos, and the smoke, or am I going to focus on his heart? Or here's this young teenage girl who's turned up pregnant. Am I going to focus on the pregnancy or am I going to focus on her? Because Jesus came and he focused on us in the midst of all of our mess. And I personally want to be a part of a church that welcomes people as they are. I want to be a part of a family that welcomes people as they are. I want to be the kind of man 
that welcomes people as they are because you do not judge anyone into life change. I've seen many people loved into life change. I've never seen someone judged into life change. How do I say it graciously? Allow people to come as they are. And number three, as we invite our band forward right now, add these words, I am for you, I am for you, I am for you. We live in this cancel culture now where the moment there's disagreement between people, there's this fear that rises up, and I feel it in my belly too. There's this fear that rises up, perhaps this person will cancel me out because they see I disagree with them on this issue. It's a new phenomenon in our culture, it seems, that's grown a lot in these past number of years, that if I get something wrong in this person's eyes, maybe my relationship with them will be cut off. And it just contributes to this experience of being beat down by this world, does it not? Contributes to the experience of being beat down by this world. And the result is simply this. People are more sensitive today than they used to be. And so you have to meet them right where they are. In their sensitivity and not judge that sensitivity. Meet them right there. And if God has given you an opportunity with someone in your life group or someone in your family to challenge them with a word of truth that they really need to hear, be sure you include these words. I'm for you. I'm for you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. I'm not trying to prove that you're wrong. I am for you. People need to hear that. We need to hear heavy words from people who have a heavy influence in our lives. I love this song, The Blessing, which we're about to sing right now. And I love the entire song, but when we get to the bridge, in which the lyrics of the song go like this, he is for you, he is for you, he is for you, he is for you. Almost every time I hear this song, I start to cry. (laughs) Because I need to hear these heavy words from my father, that he is for me. He is for me. I'm so grateful for my parents when they tell me this, that they're for me. And my wife, when she tells me she is for me. And my friends, when they tell me they're for me even though they need to keep me accountable at times because I make lots of mistakes, they're still for me. And it's this balance, more than a balance. It's 100% of both. Jesus came, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of what humanity is supposed to be. And he is for you.